So let me ask you to turn to Exodus. We're going to look this morning at Exodus chapter 2 through Exodus chapter 2 verse 11 through Exodus chapter 3 and verse 10, which will be the first of the four dots in your sermon outline. So be heartened when you see the time passing and many dots yet to go. But let me read for you, if I might, from chapter 3 of Exodus and verses 7 through 10. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to look together at this story familiar to many and yet so profound in the unfolding of your salvific purposes the unfolding of your covenant redemption. I pray, Lord, that you would again use it to speak to us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to stir us up to a holy passion. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Once more, terror stalks our streets. And I sit and listen as the secular media accurately describes what is happening, what has happened in Boston this past week, accurately describes it as evil. Scripture teaches, and it should sober and humble us, Scripture teaches that such evil grows out of the seeds of anger and hatred that we often feel toward others, just as sexual sins of all stripes spring from the roots of lust often planted deep within us. So the violence of terror springs from those seeds of anger and hatred too often, too familiar to all of us. It is only by God's common grace, that common grace that reaches to all whether they acknowledge Him or not, it is only by His common grace that these seeds and roots do not reach their full potential 
the problem of evil, the problem of why, why ultimately evil exists is a question that is not directly addressed by Scripture. I cannot tell you, based upon the authority of Scripture, why our first parents rebelled against their Maker. But the evil, the evil consequences, the consequences of evil are, are obvious, both internally as well as externally. You realize that the use of the word evil is a problem for those who do not believe in our good, all-powerful God because the question has to rise. The question has to be asked. How do they justify labeling certain behaviors or events evil? while judging others to be good. How do they do that? Are people or events good or evil because I say so? Because you say so? Is the authority ours? So what if your judgment and my judgment are not in agreement? Then who decides? Who decides what's right, what's wrong? Who decides what's good, what's evil? Culturally, we seem to be caught up in the idea that we can determine right and wrong, good and evil by discovering what 51% of our population think. Let's just take a poll. And whatever the poll results are, then we know this is good because 51% of the people say so. Furthermore, as believers, or I should say, but as believers, we know that good and evil, right and wrong, are determined by the very character of our Lord and King, our Creator, our Maker, and amazingly, our Savior. Our Lord, our King, our Creator took upon Himself our sins and suffered the ultimate horror of evil. There at Calvary, He descended into hell, separated for a moment in time from His Father. But then by His victory over sin, death, and the grave, He blesses us with the assurance that greater is He who is in us than he who was in the world. And he allows us to, to live with the sure and certain hope that having won the victory, that having won that victory, he has even now begun to turn all things right side up. For example, here we are. 
because of His common grace to us as a people, whether we acknowledge Him or not, His common grace. I'm not talking about that saving grace that brings us individually to the place of embracing Him as our Savior and our Lord and King. I'm talking about that common grace that He has freely poured out upon us. Because of that common grace, we are to a significant degree. Our culture still to a significant degree is so influenced by the teachings of Scripture, whether we acknowledge those Scriptures or not, we are yet so influenced by those teachings that we do not face daily the threat of barbarity. And that is by God's common grace. That is by His common grace. If He were to withdraw that common grace, then the events of Boston this past week would be for us a daily, if not hourly, experience. Biblical history certainly demonstrates to us that the evils of today are not new. Here in the book of Exodus, we find the Israelites being harshly abused by the Egyptians. We find a Pharaoh ordering that all Israelite baby boys be put to death. But that history... The history of that horrific moment also shows us a God preparing His deliverance and preparing His deliverer. We saw last week Moses is hidden by his parents, then found by an Egyptian princess. Then he is raised by his mother, as well as educated in Pharaoh's schools. But Mama won. Mama won. Because of what Moses learned at his mother's knee, we're told... Just listen, we're told in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, that though raised as an Egyptian prince at the age of 40, it came into Moses' heart to visit his people. And this is what we are told. This is what we're told in Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26. We're told that instead of choosing to be identified as Pharaoh's daughter's son, Moses chose rather, now just listen to this, Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered... Listen to these words. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth 
than the treasures of Egypt. The amazing unity of Scripture. I mean, Moses does not know the name of his deliverer. And yet he chooses to be identified with one as yet not known to him. He chooses to identify with his and our Lord, whose name is Jesus. Look at Exodus 2, verses 11 through 15. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, Moses, though 40 years of age, still has a lot to learn. Seeing an Egyptian being beaten, seeing an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, Moses, Moses takes matters into his own hands and he, he murders the Egyptian. Hides him in the sand. Then the next day, when he attempts to break up a fight between two Hebrew slaves, he finds himself rejected and frightened by what he hears. Because one of the Hebrew slaves speaks up and says to him, Who made you a prince and judge over us? You mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Now humbled and scared, Moses flees from Egypt. He flees east into the land of Midian. It will be into these same lands that 40 years later Moses will lead the children of Israel. And there, at a well, <laughs> how often does a well play a part in the history of the patriarchs? There at a well, Moses protects the seven daughters of the Midian priest from some aggressive male shepherds. He, he waters the sisters' flocks, which again sort of anticipates the day when he will provide water for God's flock the Israelites, he waters the flocks of the sisters. The sisters' father, Ruel, offers Moses a home. Moses eventually marries one of the sisters named Zipporah. They have a son whom Moses names Gershom, a name reflecting the humbled status of a former Egyptian prince who now lives as a sojourner in a foreign land. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 speaks about many days. In fact, those many days are 40 years. 40 years go by. How often does the number 40 play a role in the unfolding of God's salvific purposes, 40 years during those... Now listen to this. This is, if you will, a footnote, but this is quite important. During those 40 years, Pharaoh Tutmos III, Pharaoh Tutmos III dies. 
He is the only Pharaoh 200 years either side of his reign. He is the only Pharaoh during a span of four centuries who lives long enough for Moses to fear returning to Egypt for 40 years. Now Thutmose III dies. And we see the people of Israel there at the end of chapter 2 groaning, crying to God. We're told that God hears them. We're told that He remembers His covenant, that He looks upon His people, and that He intimately knows them. That is, that He loves them. And by the way, to say that God remembers His covenant is not to suggest that somehow or other He had forgotten His covenant promises. It's a Hebrewism which speaks of God choosing now, at this moment in human history, to begin to take the steps necessary to fulfill those covenant promises. Now again, a little dose of reality here. These people have been enslaved at least 160 years. They've been groaning and praying for a long, long time. And obviously, the, the, the question can, can be asked. I mean, does not the question just flood into our minds? Why is God so long? Why is He taking so long to answer their cries, their groans, their prayers? Surely no one here has ever felt that way. Hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades. Is anybody paying attention? Do you know what's going on here? Do something. We've all known such times when we, we just wonder why God is so slow in answering our cries and our groans. The historical record of Scripture shows us, teaches us, and we learn to accept by faith that God's purposes and God's timing are always perfect. Here, during these past 40 years, the once proud prince of Egypt, he marries a simple country girl. And, and he works. He works as a shepherd. He works as a shepherd. Good training for one who will be called to shepherd God's flock. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Moses takes his father-in-law's sheep to western pasture lands. Now, you'll notice that Moses' father-in-law is now called Jethro. Well, some believe... There's a little bit of dispute about this. It's a rather perplexing issue. But some believe that Jethro may be a title so that, in fact, Moses' father-in-law is Ruel, that is, the Jethro, which may be a designation of his priesthood. But we're not absolutely sure. At any rate, Moses comes to the mountain range of Horeb. And by the way, one of the 
peaks of the mountain range of Horeb is Sinai. But he comes now to these mountains, and there Moses sees a bush on fire, but not consumed by the flames. The bush burns, but it's not consumed. Curious, Moses checks it out. But as he draws near, suddenly from the bush, he hears Moses. Moses. I hope somewhere where there's a picture of his face at that particular moment in time. Moses. Moses. And Moses answers as many others answer at such moments in time. Moses responds, here I am. And again, we don't have any stage directions. But I don't think he said, here I am. I have to believe he said, here I am. The voice tells Moses, one, don't come any closer, and two, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. Now, we understand the instructions not to come any nearer. I'm sure at that point Moses really had no intention of drawing any nearer. But take off your sandals. Well, clearly, Moses' culture, like many Oriental cultures still today, viewed removing one's sandals as an act of reverence, an act of respect. I once entered Westminster Abbey in London without removing my cap. Very nice Scottish cap. I took three steps before a deacon touched my arm and said, Sir, remove your hat. I was chagrined, hoping no one else noticed, especially all of the students who were accompanying me. In our culture, in our culture, again, influenced by Scripture, though we may not recognize that, in our culture, it, at least it used to be the policy, it used to be a matter of common courtesy for a man to remove his hat or ball cap when entering a house of worship. The ground on which Moses stands is holy because God is holy. God is always present, but God is present here in a particular fashion. This ground is holy. Holy speaks. Holy is an interesting word. It speaks of God's transcendence which is a big word which means that God exists eternally apart from the limitations of the physical universe that He created. I mean, it means that God is the Creator. He is not a part of creation. He is holy. He is separate from His creation. Now the voice identifies Himself. And you have to believe... But Mama's t- teaching kicks in at this point. Because from the bush, Moses, is, Moses hears, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Well, I have to think that that meant something to Moses because of what his mama taught him. And standing there before 
his God, the God of his fathers, the gods, the God of the patriarchs. Moses, Moses is afraid. He hides his face. It's healthy to fear the Lord. Listen, we are to love God with all of our hearts and soul and strength and mind. But if we have the inkling of an idea of who He is, we will fear Him. That is, we will reverence Him, which means we will take seriously His Word to us. We will take seriously His commands. We will eagerly seek to please Him. Obey obediently ready and willing to do as our king commands we love him knowing that he first loved us knowing that what he asks of us is always right and good and best but he's not our buddy he's our lord and master and king. And no one in the Scripture ever comes into God's presence without some response of fear. God tells Moses, says, listen, I've heard my people's cries. I wonder how long it's been since Moses thought about those people. It's been 40 years. God says to Moses, I hear my people's cries. I know their suffering. I've come to deliver them out of Egypt and to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at at chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. God tells Moses, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Oh, we got good news here. I mean, the good news is God is going to deliver His people out of the slavery of Egypt. But, but now just wait a minute. Wait a minute. That, that's really good news. But did I hear you say that you choose me to go back to Egypt and stand before the Pharaoh and demand that he release your people and my people and then I'm supposed to bring them up out of Egypt. Did I hear that correctly? Well, next week we're going to consider five questions Moses asks. They're all not in the form of a question, but in my mind they all amount to a question. Five questions that Moses is going to ask, and I want to tell you something in anticipation of that next week. I find Moses' questions greatly encouraging. Don't you have questions? 
I mean, we all have questions. Our faith is not a blind faith in which we don't ask questions. Of course we have questions. And we should especially have questions if we are children of God, if by grace through faith we've embraced Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord and King. We ought to have some questions because God has called us, He's called you and me to exercise an obedient faith. An obedient faith is how Scripture describes it. To exercise an obedient faith which includes living lives that make others wonder about the one we serve. Make others positively wonder about the ones, about the one we serve. Often, often that wonderment can open doors for us to, to share with them, however simply, the good news concerning Jesus. Because we're in the same place Moses was in. Jesus promises to build his church, and then he tells us that we will be the ones through whom he does the building. And I love the promise. Jesus has said, I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell can resist it. And oh yeah, by the way, you are the ones through whom I will do that building. Huh. Okay. I mean, does that provoke for you any questions? How adequate do you feel for that task? I mean, if you sit there and go, okay, I got it. I'm a little worried about you. How adequate do you feel for that task? God tells Moses... God tells Moses that he, the Lord, is going to deliver his people out of Egypt. And oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to do that through you. It will be through you, Moses, that I will accomplish my purposes. And for Moses, as we will see, that raises questions of adequacy. And I suggest to you that there is much for us to learn from hearing Moses' questions and the Lord's answers. And that will be our focus next week. Evil is a reality. Children of Israel knew that well. And once more, we as a nation are reminded of that reality. God makes it known that as far as the children of Israel are concerned, that He is about to turn things right side up. And that He's going to do that through Moses. Now Jesus promises to build His church through you and me. Now, how important was Moses? That's how important you are. Humanly speaking, Moses is Israel's only hope. Humanly speaking, you are this world's only hope. 
Do you question how desperately dark the world is in which we live? Do you question that? There are wonderful things in this world, amazing things for us to enjoy and to appreciate. I love it in the springtime when, you know, you look at bare branches one day and the next day, boom! You know, they're covered with new life. This is a wonderful place that God has created, but it is stained and it is darkened by the reality of that sin that lives within all of us. And only by God's grace does not come fully to fruition. And only by God's grace are we delivered. By grace through faith in Jesus Christ are we delivered from sin's curse and power. Jesus said, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. So now let your light, let it so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And if you hear all of that and questions of, of inadequacy just, just well up within you, then I ask you to come back next week and I ask you this morning to simply hear God's truth and with Moses answer. Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Let's pray. Father, teach us. May we hear your call. Lord, it, it had to absolutely flabbergast Moses to think that he was the one that you would use to lead his people out of Egypt. Good news, you're going to deliver the people, but through me? Good news, Lord, you promised to build your church. But how could you possibly plan to do that through people like us. Lord, only by Your enabling grace, only by the outpouring of Your Holy Spirit, only by the blowing of a heavenly breeze, only by Your power and might and authority. Only in light of your promise 
that you will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.